0: our history to something very modern. It has to do with a scotch recipe. Now, uh, I think this recipe will be amusing to hear about. I'm not saying this will fun of the scotch, as you'll see, when I finish, because after I've been married to... Of Scots, it would hardly be uh, very wise for me to uh, ridicule the Scots. And besides, I think they're a pretty wonderful and remarkable people. But there's a point in this with regard to history. This is the recipe for the very popular and uh Scots dish, which has been often called the national dish, How August is something perhaps you've never heard about. After you hear about it, you may be glad that you never did. Now, this uh, recipe is in an English Encyclopedia of Gastronomy, so, uh, written by a Frenchman in England. So you can see they're not going to be particularly uh congenial to... uh Something from up north in Scotland, South Wales. a popular Scotch dish, named by Burns, Great Chieftain of the Food and Race. It is made of the heart, lungs, and liver of the sheep. hashed or finely minced, about a quarter of the liver being grated, with suet, onions, oatmeal, salt, and pepper. The whole is usually thrown up in either the large stomach bag or a smaller one, called the kinghood of the sheep, well sent. As a rule, one does not attempt to make a haggis. One just buys a haggis and does not inquire too closely (laughs) as to how it was made. A bought haggis must be simmered in all but boiling water long enough to be thoroughly hot and steaming when a foot is made in the punch for a large tablespoonful of a tablespoon previously dipped in boiling water to be inserted and the haggis scooped up. It is usually served wrapped up in a thickly starched napkin to cover the none too appetizing bare look of the sheet's stomach. Neat whiskey is the orthodox liquid accompaniment of the haggis, and it should be drunk from a quake, a kind of shallow wooden drinking cup with two lugs or handles. Edward Spencer tells in Cakes and Ale how haggis was introduced into Scotland by the Romans who made it by filling the pig's boiled stomach with fry and brains. Raw eggs and pulped pineapple seasoned with a disgusting decoction called licuainum, based on putrefied intestines of fish mixed with spice and wine. But the Scots, who hated any form of pig, and let me add parenthetically, because they took the Old Testament post-it-law very strictly. The Scots, therefore, would have nothing to do with anything that wasn't cultural. And this being said, it's rather surprising that old English classical uh, authors, such as as Don Prath and Mason, modify their scotch haggis or haggas by the use of cat. Here, however, is the official recipe taught in the schools of Edinburgh of the present day, which appears to embody most of the principles necessary for the success of the age-old Scottish faith, haggis. A sheep's bag and crock, liver, life, and heart, a half-pound mint suet, a half-pound of oatmeal, half a teaspoon powdered herbs, one half ditto pepper, one, ha- one ditto sauce, four medium-sized onions. Wash the bag in cold water, scrape them, clean it well. Let it lie all night in cold water with a little sauce. Wash the crust, Put it into a pot of boiling water with a teaspoon of sauce. Boil for two hours with a windpipe hanging out.
1: (laughs) When cold,
0: cut off the windpipe. Great half the liver, the other half of which is not used. Mince the uh, heart, light suet, and onions. Add the oatmeal, which should first be toasted to a golden color. The pepper and salt and herbs. And one pint of the water the puff was boiled in. You don't throw away the water, you boil it in. Uh, place the, uh, mix well, fill the bag rather more than half full of the mixture, fill it up, place the hoggets in a pot of boiling water, and boil for three hours, cooking it occasionally to keep it from bursting. Serve very hot with some mashed potatoes and turnips and, of course, a course, of sage. That's the wooden uh, bowl with whiskey. It has been recently stated that this creature can be used whole or unprocessed uh, to boil with a thick vegetable and water stew, making a nutritious soup. It can then be cut open and either eaten as a vegetable or as a meat cut. What is left is cut in slices and fried instead of baked into breakfast. And the remains put in pastry cases, made useful, uh, make useful savoury. The case which holds it uh, uh, is Christ so every bit but the string is edible. Uh what is the national dish? And I read about it at some length because I think it has a great deal of relevance to the study of history. You can go across the face of the earth and find that in bygone years, when food was scarce and times were difficult, other people had similar dishes. They forgot about them the minute they crossed it. But it's still the national dish in Scotland. And it has something to do, of course, with the character. There's nothing wasted, you see, of the sheep when they put it. Everything is used, except the strength with which the thing is sewed up. Now, of course, this goes back to the character. After all, our Scotch proverb is that you need salt in your porridge. In other words, you don't put sugar in your porridge. That's for the course, that makes them scratch. You put salt in your porridge. So, adversity is something, and, uh, they like, and luxury, that the sugar is something they dislike. Quite another thing, which perhaps might not strike on you in the best of taste, but I think is very revealing about the Scotch. In uh, the islands of Scotland, to this day, they regard it as a mark of being soft and effeminate, uh, a weak English-type character. If you have a wee hoosie in back of the cottage, a wee hootie is mad at. Any vigorous Scot takes a two-mile walk after the header. And uh, this is their way of life. Of course, the saying is that uh, during World War I, the reason why the Scottish black watch was such a terror for the Germans was that they were always looking for that two-mile of open country when they charged over the top.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: I've taken a little time to go into this space of scotch because what does it all reveal? There are people who today are prosperous, but they still have the same national dish. They still have ways that uh them all over the world, and because said that they succeed, who've gone into more areas of the winter. There's almost no point in the world where you travel where you don't find the Scots and the Jews have gone in and contributed to civilization, been the outpost of civilization. And of course, if you go back through the history of America, you find that most of your schools and colleges were started
2: by Scotsmen.
0: Very interesting fact. Now, other people have had issues like in all times. why have the Scotch had in any kind of time? If it goes back to something in the national character, which was there very early when Christianity came in and became doubly reinforced when they became Calvinists before her particular.
1: In other words, history is not just. So
0: Many people have had difficult environments with not alone. It is also character. And behind the chapter is their faith. Now we're going to begin with a people...
1: They were never numerically strong. They were a small
2: handful. And yet, they dominated the world for centuries. They first rose to power,
1: oh, about a couple of centuries before David and Solomon. There was a period there during the reigns of David and Solomon when
2: their power more or less waned for a brief time, but then it rose again immediately after Solomon's death. And it continued for several centuries after. They were a terrifying people. Warlike to the end degree. Even to terrorizing people. Now in our text I described some of their friends. You can go through the inscriptions that the Assyrian monarchs left, and also the records of other people, you find why they were a terror to the world they their day. If a people would not submit immediately when they would tell them, Submit to our power and become a tributary people, or else they would go in and raise their cities to the ground. They would be heads of men, one after another, and leave a mountain of stones. A mountain of stones. Thousands and tens of thousands of stones. And they would take the leaders, the king and his counselors and others, and skin them alive before they executed them. No wonder that they became a byword
1: for error. This was their way. You
2: an aspect of their national character. Now, there still are some of these. It is the 100,000 of them at all. They have been now for centuries a pretty people. And they're a very mild, kindly of human. Their previous fate made them a particularly floral-like and ugly people. Now they are particularly kindly. There are a few colonies of them in California.
1: They have a church or two in the San Valley. I believe there is or there used to be a church, a Syrian Presbyterian church in Paralympic. And one or two churches in Paris. The Syrians, uh, very powerful people, but numerically very strong, dominated the world for a long time, both because of their character and also because of their character. But their character,
2: their discipline was enormous, and their military discipline made them something to reckon with wherever they went because it took only a very limited number of Assyrians against the enemy to overthrow them. Let's turn now to the religious side of the Assyrians. Turning
1: to one of their ancient ins- inscriptions, from Pritchard's Near- ancient Near Eastern texts, we have the statement of one of their monarchs, from the Third, whose dates are 858 to 824. I am Shalmaneser, the legitimate king, the king of the world,
2: the king without rival, <clears throat> the great dragon, the only power within the four rims of the
0: earth, the overlord of all the princes,
2: who has smashed all his enemies as if they be earthenware, the strong man, unsparing, who shows no mercy is that. Now that tells you, I guess,
1: that is a merciless one. But also, the king of the world,
2: the king without rival, the great dragon. The footnote makes it clear that the meaning of this, as wisdom shall mean giant snake. Very interesting thing. And, of course, it doesn't take more than a moment's reflection to understand it. After all, what is Satan called? we of scripture? And even in Revelation, Revelation 12:9, we have the destination at the very end of Scripture. The great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world, very clearly. The, the Assyrian monarchs, in calling themselves the great dragon, saw themselves as the incarnation, as it were, as the presence in the world of Satan. but not. Satan, as we see him, as the enemy, but as the great liberator of mankind. Let's turn over to another inscription from ancient Syria. This is from Adad Nirari the Third, 810 to 783. Adad Nirari, great king, legitimate king, king of the world, king. A king whom Asher, the king of the Agigi, that is, the superior God among God, had chosen already when he was a youngster, entrusting him with the position of a prince without rival, whose shepherding they made agreeable to the people of Assyria, as is the smell of a swamp of life. A king whose throne they have Calls himself a shepherd Uh, of Assyria. Now the word shepherd in ancient times meant God. God is the shepherd of men. This is why God speaks to himself as the shepherd of Israel in the Old
1: Testament. When our Lord said, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep, he was
2: saying, I am God
1: why they said he makes himself through god? What On the call himself a great god
2: who is like the plant of life or the tree of life. Now do you see something of the faith behind the theory of terror?
1: The bringer of
2: life to mankind. The liberator of man thinks the kings of Assyria as the great dragon, the liberator, the bringer of
1: life and freedom to man, like the tree of life or the plant of life. In other words, pagan religions were satanic imitations of true
2: religions, whose design was to lead to the city or kingdom of man against them. Regained Eden by means of God. Change and chaos were seen as the ways to progress and freedom. Mm-hmm. The kings, therefore, as the representatives of the great service, were waging a revolution against God and the tyrant, and using chaos as a way to order the I pointed out in the text how they saw the world as the evolving world order. And the king or ruler was at the top at any one point. It would be, for the time, the representation, the manifestation of the power of the universe, the great dragon. And for this purpose, everything was to be brought under him as the liberator of mankind. And this is why the Assyrians... Who had the dream of a one world without God would take people forcibly out of their homeland and scatter them throughout their empire so that they would break down all national unity. And this is what they did to the northern kingdom of Israel. They took them and they scattered them throughout the empire hoping that they would forget their language, they would forget where they came from, They would intermarry with other peoples and would be lost. And of course, many of the nations disappeared under this policy, which both Assyria and Babylon. Correct. I mentioned the serpent. He appears very often in ancient religions. As a matter of fact, you can see him today as a survival. After all, what is the emblem used by a doctor. Not one and They did what it means. But a sack with serpent around about it. The tree of life with a serpent around it. And what does it mean? Why, well, It has reference to the healing god, supposedly. Well, why is the snake the healing god? Because the snake delivered. The serpent delivered man from God. And the Greek word for that god is asquipio, which means the instructing snake, and the Latin form of it is Asclepius, the man instructing snake. That's the original and older form, the man instructing snake. He who instructed mankind in the way of health, in the way of freedom, in the way of liberation. Now, going on next to Babylon. Babylon had a similar policy as Assyria, forcibly moving people, trying to create a one-world order. But their policy was not quite as ruthless as the Assyrians. If you believe, as the Assyrians and Babylonians did, that everything was originally chaos, and the world must continually change and be regenerated by chaos. Chaos is a way to regeneration or revolution. Acts of chaos, perversion, and so on, as a way to get a charge, as it were. That means that there's no certainty. Anymore. Because to get ahead, you have to have chaos. Now, if you're trying to build something that doesn't give you too much security. And this is why I included in the text a very interesting prayer on page 25 of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, the name Nebuchadnezzar is the Babylonian form. The Hebrew form of the word is Nebuchadnezzar. The difference is an N and an R in the two languages. Now, Nebuchadnezzar prays. Page 25, the first quotation. O oh, my, my Lord, do remember my deeds favorably as good deeds. May these my good deeds be always before your mind, so that my walking in Esipila and Edita, which I love, may last to whole day. May I remain always your legitimate governor. May I pull your yoke till I am sated with progeny for children. May my name be remembered in future days in a good sense. May my offspring rule forever over the blanket. Well, when he wrote this, there was not a hint of any country having any chance of standing up to Babylon. And yet, the fearful was the last person. Of course, this is the way they all feel. Fearful and uncertain, because its life is continual revolution, chaos. One of was adhered to before two years is the establishment today to the, the revolution
1: against you. And of course, this is the position of our modern revolutionary perpetual chaos, perpetual revolution. And of
2: course, his son in law, Naphthonitis, who succeeded him, who was the father of Belshaster, later down in the page page 25, he describes his own rise to power when he is made king. They carried me into the palace and all prostrated themselves to my feet. They kissed my feet, greeting me again and again as king. Thus I was elevated to rule the country by the order of my lord Marduk, and therefore I shall obtain whatever I desire. There shall be no rival either. And of course there is the basic base of a to is revolution. How are you going to stand after a revolution? Is it chaos? You will be fighting as it were against yourself because what you believe in is in chaos. <laughs> and if there's a revolution
1: against you, if you're a revolution, how are you going to stand? <laughs> and as a result,
2: there was always this concern. Now, continuing with our analysis of uh, Assyria, their thesis was that the whole universe is a state. The Babylonians, like the Assyrians, believe that there are gods in the other world. They are higher grade men, as it were, And they are evolving like the world is. And they have a state a government. The whole universe is a government which goes through revolutions and there are changes and sometimes one set of gods takes over and one set of man takes over on earth. But the only kind of life is in the state. In this work, Before Philosophy, by Frankfurt and uh, Wilson and Jacobson, they comment on the function of the state. I quote, The fact that the Mesopotamian universe was conceived of as a state. The gods who owned and ruled the various city states were bound
1: together in a higher unity, the assembly of the gods, which possessed executive organs for exerting outward pressure as well as for enforcing law and order internally, as far-reaching consequences for Mesopotamian history, and for the ways in which
2: historical events were viewed and interpreted. It vastly strengthened tendencies towards political unification of the country by sanctioning even the most violent of means used towards that end. For any conqueror, if he was successful, was recognized as the agent of the envy of the gods. It, it also provided, even at times
1: when national
2: unity was at a low ebb and the many city-states were, for all practical purposes, independent unity. Background on which international law could work. Now, to develop that point a little bit, how did the Babylonian monarch become king? What marked him as king? Well, he seized power and he went to the great temple of Babylon where there was a great picture of Marduk or Baal with his hand outstretched as if to shake your hand. The one who gained power went up there and shook Baal or Marduk's hand. Say, I have now come at the top. I have beaten everybody else, so I am now on your level, I am one of the God. All the power in the universe is in me. My act of chaos is with me here. Or he could be someone who gained it by defeating the other brothers taking his so, so father's position. Of course, what would prevent someone from overthrowing him yeah. and going and triumphantly grabbing Bel or Bell or Ardu's hand and saying, I am the one. Yeah. Revolution and triumph. For then men could not live except in the state or without a political reason. But in a world in which all is revolution or chaos and the way to success, we are going to be pessimistic because what can you instill The very fact that it has endured for a while is a sign that uh, it's no so good anymore it should be overthrown. And so, in the so-called Gilgamesh epic, which they tell us, some of these. Uh, To talk about the Bible of other religions, this is the Bible of the peoples of Mesopotamia Everything in the book tells Gilgamesh, that his quest for the way to heaven, or eternal life, or peace in this world, is hopeless. Listen to this passage from the Gilgamesh Epic. Gilgamesh, whither are you wandering? Life which you look for, you will never find. For when the gods created man, they let death be a share, and life withheld in their own hands. Fill the fill your belly day and night, make merry. Let days be full of joy, dance and make music day and night. And wear fresh clothes and wash your head and face. Look at the child that is holding your hand, and let your wife delight in your embrace. These things alone are the. Going to be dead soon. Life doesn't mean anything. Thus it was a uh, radically pessimistic
1: perspective. And so it is, that someone has said, letting the Egyptians
2: return with their desire to have things permanent, they'd be satisfied with the well the parameters of standing. The Assyrians and the Babylonians. Say about these everything is changed.
1: Life is perpetual revolution, perpetual prostration. To continue
2: now with Persia. And again, to understand its history by understanding its religion. The ancient religion of Persia was, does anyone know? What it was? Yes. Zoroastrianism, yes. And all the subsequent states were developments of that until Islam took over. Zoroastrianism. Now, the word Zoroaster is again a very interesting word. Originally it was Zoroastrianism after a Chaldean name, an ancient Chaldean name, and it means, it can be same, seed of the woman, or seed of the fire. Why they have the same words for woman and fire, I don't know. Well, maybe some of you men can figure it out. But at any rate, now this again is very, very interesting to us as Christians, because who is the deliverer according to the prophet? She is the woman, the seed woman. And so Zoroaster came as the seed of the woman, claiming to be the Messiah, the promised Now, the name was subsequently changed a little bit in the Zendavesta writings, the religious writings of Zoroastrianism. Zarathustra, which is the way Nietzsche used it. Zarathustra means the delivering seed or the emancipator, so the woman was dropped. But fire remained as the symbol of their religion.
1: Zarathustra, or
2: Zoroaster, or Zoroastrian, came therefore as the Messiah. Claiming to be the fulfillment of the promise made to Adam and Eve concerning the one who would come as the deliverer of mankind. What was this deliverance that Zoroaster What was his religion? Well, Zoroaster's teaching was very simple. There are two ultimate powers in the universe. call God and Satan; They're equal in power. One didn't make the other. They were both there from the beginning. So that good and evil are opposite
1: spirit and matter, evil and goodness, light and
2: dark. Both, therefore, are equally true. Just
1: take your pick. Either one
2: is the way of holiness is Why in India today, where there are traces of this kind of thing surviving in Hinduism, you find ascetic schools have nothing to do with women because they're matter, man and spirit. Sure, that's their version of it. They don't think it's very sound one. Like. And therefore, they have nothing to do with women representing the material, the central world. They will have almost nothing to do with food, just barely enough to stay alive.
1: They will withdraw and contemplate things of the Spirit.
2: There are others who are equally holy, who have nothing to do with anything of the Spirit, who will give themselves over day after day, and they will have monasteries and convents for these people. Buddhism has them also. For all they do is practice various sexual rites and perversions, Day after day after day, it's been called, by one scholar, games of musical chairs, Only with sex. This is the way of going. Why well, that? Because you can serve either one. They're both equally true. What does this lead to? Well, you're basically tolerant then, are If neither one is truer than the other or more ultimate than the other, you can take your pick or you can live saying, well, I'm not going to go the way of all-out sex or all-out asceticism, all-out good or all-out evil. I'm going to live tolerant of both. Now, in my chapter, I point out that the Persians were tolerant of different religions. (laughs) It was the Persians when they overthrew Babylon that permitted Ezra and Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild And they were very kindly about their religion. Why? Well, this is a matter of religious faith and policy. With them. <laughs> if everything is equally true,
1: to be tolerant of everything.
2: So the Persians followed this kind of rule, And they were, in a sense, far more successful than the Assyrians and Babylonians in lending all the different peoples into one empire. As a matter of fact, the Greeks themselves, who were under Persian rule, we're not happy when Alexander the Great overthrew Persian rule in their area. Because the Persians were so tolerant of everything. And of course, this tolerance led in most of these religions to syncretism. Syncretism means merging with a smallest more kind of religion. Go through and take your pick whatever you want, a little jib of this and a dab of that, whatever looks good in all these things. Of course, we have a great deal of that kind of mentality today.
1: Because, again, today, the attitude is very much
2: like that of the Zoroastrian, that, well, there's good and evil in the world, and uh, they're a part of life, and you tolerate all of it. So you have a total toleration of everything. That you not tolerate. As a result, Persia was a powerful and a stable empire for a long, long time. It was, incidentally, as I point out in the text, that a Western country. They were a definitely Western people. A good deal of Asia in those days was western territory. And right up into the Middle Ages you find that Englishmen thought nothing about taking a trip clear across Asia and Africa Asia and Europe to China. And the number of travelers in those days was tremendous. To continue now with
1: Greece. To
2: analyze the religious motives that undergird Greek culture so that we can understand the direction of their history. Their great writers, that are considered classics, were religious writers, but humanistic to the core. Their religion was a form of humanism. Homer was, of course, their greatest poet. And in Homer, what you have is a picture of the hero. And the hero is a very special kind of person. We talk about heroism, and we talk mean by it,
1: somebody who is brave and courageous. But a hero is something more than that, strictly. A hero is a kind
2: of a superman who is more than half-god. Because he does such great things so that the spirit of the universe is incarnate in him. And therefore he is above law. He is an exception to law because he represents something that's unusual in history. Law and morality for the uh, ordinary crowd. The that The hero is above the existence. We have the concept of heroism and the hero with us again. It was revived a couple of centuries ago by humanism. We had it at the time of the Renaissance and then it was revived again in the Enlightenment. And it has become a very important aspect of modern political thinking. (laughs) In German, it's this pure so you immediately know what it means there. We have the same concept of the hero in America when they speak about a leader having charisma. C h a r i s m a. Roosevelt had charisma. So did Kennedy. And who's the man with charisma who can command the scene politically? And we are told that... Uh, Husky has charismatic qualities. And, of course, uh, the word is charisma, chrism, Christening, It has a messianic connotation. It has a connotation of power from above, a kind of supernatural power, Superman. So that Homer... Portraying the hero for us is portraying a religious figure. And today, as people again, very much Hellenic in their thinking, very much influenced by Greek culture the great homeland of humanism, as it were, again look for the charismatic leader, for the pure, for the great dictator like Stalin, for the Pergillian. Who will stand out and be above law? Therefore, who will lead the people into the new garden of Eden? Now, to pass on to some of the other great writers of Greece, so that we understand Greece through them. There are three great dramatists: were Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides. And, of course, what they wrote basically was tragedy. Tragedy is a non-Christian and, we might say, very, very definitely an anti-Christian form of art. Why? Because the essence of tragedy is that man is a pawn in a perverse universe. Where the unrelenting fury of the gods awaits all who offend the gods, even though they may do it all unknowingly. The death is stacked. Things are hopeless. No matter what you do, you're guilty, and the gods are going to take it out on you. The powers in the universe. In other words, it's a perverse universe. Now, I brought the tragedies of Sophocles. With me to give you an idea of this. Socrates was perhaps the greatest of the three, and his greatest works are those that deal with the Oedipus, Oedipus story. Well, you all know the Oedipus complex that Freud popularized being in love with your mother. Of course, it isn't the Greek story. The Greek story is a very interesting one. This young prince and his young wife have a baby. And they bring in a fairy to uh, prophesy concerning this glorious reign and so on and going to happen with this beautiful baby. And he says this baby is going to kill his father and marry him. Well, immediately the young king is very upset. So he calls in one of the servants to uh, take the baby out and kill him. Kill him that so the servant takes the baby out, but it's such a beautiful child. His heart melts the pity, and so when he's off in another, he takes him into another country, and there he gives him to a shepherd to prayer. He gives him to take care of his poor baby. And figuring it's a long way from home. So the boy grows up and becomes quite a powerful
1: capable, brilliant young warrior. His name is Edison.